This is Mind the Gap, brought to you by Calgary First Church of the Nazarene. We welcome you into a deeper discussion about current issues that divide us. After the episode, go to firstnaz.ca slash podcast to continue the conversation. Now, let's step off the pulpit and into the pews. So before we start our discussion today, I'd like to introduce the members of this panel here. Uh, so we've got Pastor Brian Roller. Hello. Hi. And Brian, Brian's not actually your, your real name, is it? Well, actually, my, my given names on my birth certificate are Robert Brian Roller. And so I, but I go by Brian, uh, my middle name, which is very confusing. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, you've been deceiving us all this whole time. It's, yeah, yeah. Say uh, Bob Brian. Say Brian Bob. A well, Bob actually, Brian. I would rather be a Bob. I, I, I love it. I, it. There's something very, very manly about Bob. I'm very macho. I, I like it. Brian's as a softer, I don't know. So I, I could be Bob. And we've also got Sermal Ranasinga here. And Sermal, once, once and for all, I think you need to tell everyone how to actually say your name. Because I've, I've heard a lot of different variations of your name. <laughs> so the way someone from Sri Lanka would say it, would be Srimal. 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 Srimal Ranasinghe would be how you, how someone from Sri Lanka would say it. But honestly, as, as long as it approximates that, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I've heard my name butchered so many times too. It, it doesn't How could they butcher matter. Ryan? Well, <laughs> it's my last name. The Sia, Sia part. Oh, the I Sia see. Part. Sia, yeah. Saya. Yeah. Anyways. Oh, okay. Um, and, and just to give our listeners some, some context, uh, I was wondering if you could just list out kind of the places that you've, you've lived and, and give a little bit of your, your backstory. And we'll start with you, Brian. Oh, yeah. Well, born in Sudbury, Ontario, spent my early years uh, in Ontario. A good chunk of my uh, elementary age years were in Kenora, Ontario, which is Lake of the Woods. And after my parents divorced, um, lived with Lived in Kenora for a year with my dad and a blended family. Then we moved out west to live with my single mom uh, through my adolescent years. Mm-hmm. And uh, grew up in Medicine Hat, uh, got saved, came to know Jesus and got baptized and all of that uh, in my mid-20s. And then moved away from Medicine Hat to Calgary in uh, 1979 to go to university, UFC, where I graduated. And then we lived in Drumheller for four years. Uh, that was the first church I served as a pastor on my own. Not just a senior pastor, but the only pastor uh, from 1981 to 1985. And then to Kansas City, Kansas City, Kansas, and went to seminary in 1985 to 89. And then moved back to Calgary and started uh, the church that's now Skyview. And uh, then came to uh, lead pastor at Calgary First Church in 2008, but been in Calgary since 89. Awesome. Lived in Canada all those years, except for the four when I went to seminary. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Brian. And what about you, Sermal? Well, I was born in uh, Colombo. Well, not technically Colombo, but just Col- just outside of Colombo in Sri Lanka. So Colombo is the capital of Sri Lanka. I was born in a, in a suburb called Nugegoda. And uh, so I lived there until about the age of 14 or so. And then we moved, my family moved to the United Arab Emirates to the city of uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, so I lived there for a bit. And then um, I went to high school there. 
And then my parents moved to Muscat, Oman, Muscat being the capital city of the country of Oman. And I shortly after that came to Canada, to, to Vancouver in British Columbia to uh, begin my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia. And so, um, yeah, I lived in Vancouver for about six years, I believe, finished my degree and worked for a couple of years there. And then um, my fiance at the time, Carolyn, um, was from Calgary. And so she, she got accepted to med school in Calgary. And so we moved back home for her. For me, it was moved to Calgary. And so I've been in Calgary since 2010. Wow. And for me, just quickly, I was born actually in, in Bellingham, Washington. Sure. I, I lived there for about six months. <laughs> My family was actually um, mostly living in, in Malaysia at that time. So I moved to to Malaysia. I lived there for the first four years of my life, basically, and then uh, my my parents migrated to to Canada. Essentially, lived in Chilliwack all all my school years at Chilliwack, hmm. and uh, yeah, and that's and then I went to Vancouver, out to UBC. That's where I met Sermal actually and Carolyn. Right. And uh, similarly, my wife took me out. Um, didn't take me out. She she brought me out to to Calgary after we graduated as well. And yeah, we've been here since 2010 as well. So Shamal's got the most exotic background, I guess, at least from our vantage point, right? Uh, you've got the, well, you, Brian, you've got the, uh, the longest background, I guess. So <laughs> yes. he's got the most stories. To say the least. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Brian, you, you'd mentioned that freedom or yeah. idea of re- freedom or religious freedom was, was really important um, and something you thought should be discussed in our church. My concern and the reason I'm interested in this particular topic is I am hearing people, Christian and non-Christian alike, who are talking about their rights and freedoms, you know, and you can't force me, the government can't force me to wear a mask. They can't force me to social distance. They can't, you know, I've got my rights and they'll, they'll go to things like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and saying, you know, the government um, has no right to tell me that I, I need to live by these these mandates and restrictions. And so what you're, what you're finding is, you know, you, you see somebody goes into a store and the store has a policy that you've got to wear your mask. And you've, you've seen some of these video footage, some video footage right of this where somebody is in a screaming match and actually pushing people down and refusing and they're, they're, they're cussing, swearing, you know, uh, because they say, you can't make me do this. And... I don't know that there are professing Christians that are acting that way, but I think there might be. (laughs) And it concerns me because, okay, let's start with Jesus. Philippians chapter two, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to grasp onto, but he emptied himself and he made himself a servant. He took on flesh. And he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and they humiliated him and he took it. It wasn't about asserting his rights. So when he suffered, he made no threats, right? Uh, He did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So he wasn't trying to create a Christian state. You know, he wasn't lobbying politicians and stuff like that. Um, 
And so I feel like the gospel that's being professed now is, is really like, I think it's ugly in the sense that I think it's turning people off um, to what Christians are. They're saying, Oh, you're one of those, you know, and, and um, it looks like a, like it's all about power, like a, a political power and Christian nationalism. And so Paul, the apostle, uh, one of my favorite passages to quote from, and, and he says it in other places, but first Corinthians nine, where he says, you know, I had the rights of an apostle to, to take a wife with me and to, to have a salary, you know, don't muzzle the ox while he is threshing, you know, the labor is worthy of his wages and you should, you know, sure. I have a right to charge you, you know, for my ministry, but I know how hard up you are. And I would rather deny myself that right, that right. Uh, I am free, but I make myself a slave to everybody. He says that in first Corinthians nine, he said, I am free, but I make myself a slave. I limit my, my liberties, my rights for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. I think that's been lost. I think what's happening is people are beating their chest and they're saying, you know, this, this is about my rights and my freedoms and I can go and refuse to wear a mask and possibly if I'm wrong, put others at risk. I'm asserting my rights. I don't see in the gospel that the spirit of meekness is about asserting our rights. I just don't see that. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple of things that, that I that thought were interesting as well that you said that Brian around, like talking about Jesus' response to, to sort of a worldly authority and, and how, how he sort of interacted with power in general. Right. Because like another couple things that really stood out for me recently, because I've been reading through the gospels is, you know, when he's, when he, when he's before Pilate and in, in, in John chapter 19, actually, he says directly to, to Pilate, he says, you know, you have no power over me except, except that that is given from, to you from above. Right. So recognizing that, that, you know, all power and authority, human and otherwise, there's like this interesting kind of melding of, of like divine and human authority here, because, you know, in sort of the eyes of the pagan Roman empire, like, you know, Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord. And so Pilate is one of the representatives of, of Caesar, of Lord Caesar, has sort of the divine in, in a pagan sense power kind of bestowed on him. But what Jesus is saying is like, no, you actually have power, but that power is a power that's actually granted to you by, by my father. Um, and so even though I and my father are both one, and then he says, you know, uh, in, in, in Matthew 28, you know, all authority on heaven and earth given to me, therefore go, this, this implication that, you know, all power is still held by Jesus, yeah. uh, by yeah. God, but, but yet I'm choosing to, A, first of all, like God has chosen to give some of that power in, in some shape or form to, to, to you as, as a human authority. And, and, and B, as God incarnate myself, I am choosing, I'm making the choice here to actually allow you to, to exercise that power to whatever. Yes, to, to he's, whatever. Submitting. he's submitting to it. Oh, I'm submitting to it. And so like that, that really struck me. And I was like, I feel like there's something I need to you know, like wrestle with a little bit. Uh, and I think it's, it's something that we, we, that we almost don't pay enough attention to in, in seeing sort of how, and, I mean, and we see this throughout the gospels actually, and you know, Paul latches on to that in his in his in his letters afterwards as well in, in different ways. But I think just the way that Jesus interacts with power and then uses power as well, and his his sort of 
verbalization of like what does power and authority actually look like in in God's kingdom, right? Um, and and so if we actually were to take seriously the gospel claim uh, or the gospel story that Jesus was also inaugurating God's kingdom on earth, you know, as he you know he sent his he sends his disciples out and says go out, and and he doesn't say like you know. Um, pray the sinner's prayer or anything like that like what he says to god you know i give you power to to heal people and to cast out demons and then to say to proclaim the kingdom of god is here uh not it's going to arrive uh sometime later in the future but like it it has arrived Uh, and and so if we take that kingdom claim seriously and 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 look at what jesus actually was doing in his ministry not just what he accomplished on the cross but what he was actually doing in terms of like embodying what does god's kingdom look like then we need to take seriously sort of how power looks in God's yes. kingdom uh, and how the use of authority looks in God's kingdom and, and the way he sort of exercised it, um, which was, as you just said, which was not grasping it and, and using it in, in certain ways, which was the, with the way that empires, the pagan empires were using it, but using it in just such a different way, like flipping it upside down. And so, you know, going back to that idea of like rights and freedoms, uh, and then, you know, there's like a bunch of, I think, for me, like spin-off questions arise well, right around, well, you know, rights and this idea of like rights and freedoms. Like there's, there is sort of a legal definition of it yeah. and, and legal definitions are often uh, sort of tied to, to, to government and authority as well. Cause I mean, you could have certain rights and freedoms that are, that are verbalized on documents, but if there's no mechanism of accountability of holding people to account to actually follow through and on maintaining those rights and freedoms, then I would say it's sort of like, what's, you know, what's, what's the point of it almost, right? Because yeah. like, like we have, for example, you know, this, this uh, on, on, on a sort of international scale, like the UN might have this, uh, all these documents sort of talking about like what, I, what, what sort of captures different types of, of human rights. Right. But you know, over the past 60, 70 years since the formation of the UN, we have seen those rights being routinely violated on a global scale. Uh, they have been happening and they're still happening to this day, right? Uh, and sometimes there just is no human way of like, I mean, like you see all the atrocities being, being, being committed in Syria, in Yemen to this day, and you know, other parts in the world, Myanmar, uh, China with the-, the China now, the story, yeah. yeah. And just an ongoing thing, like you know, all over the world, really. Uh, and but the, the, if there is no sort of human mechanism of, of of sort of holding power account to account to those rights and freedoms, then there's sort of like this thing of like, well, you know, they're there. We're like we we have it as as an intention, but we don't actually have a proper mechanism of actually enforcing them. Yeah. Uh, which then sort of begs the question, well, so what's the point? Which is why I think that this idea of like, well, you have like human rights and freedoms, but then ultimately there's God, the judge of all who in, in, in God's kingdom, there are like ultimate rights and freedoms too. We will come back to the conversation in a couple of minutes. This is a bit of an experiment, but I want you to try a spiritual practice with me. I know all our lives are busy and we've got a lot to do. Chances are you're listening to this podcast while mowing the lawn or driving or taking a walk. Whatever you're doing, Let's take a moment to pause and reflect on the past events of today, or yesterday, if you're listening to this first thing in the morning. If you don't want to take part, feel free to skip forward about three minutes. Now let's enter into a modified version of the ancient practice of examine. Think back through the events of your day or previous day, 
And I will ask four questions and give you some time to reflect. The first question, where have I felt true joy today? What has troubled or frustrated me today? When was I distracted from hearing your voice? When did I sense your presence in my home? If you need more time, feel free to hit pause and linger as long as you want to. When you're done, join me in this prayer. Lord, I bring the poverty of my soul to be transformed by your beauty, the wildness of my passions to be tamed by your love, the stubbornness of my will to be conformed by your commandments, and the yearnings of my heart to be renewed by your grace, both now and forevermore. Amen. I think most people would probably agree that masks, like, unless you, like, completely disbelieve the science, um, that, you know, that, you know, masks are probably a good thing. I think a lot of, what's on a lot of people's, Christians' minds is, you know, prohibitions against gathering um, as a church and, and worshiping. And I think there's a big concern that that's also a slippery slope and the government's overstepping their bounds. And this could, you know, some people like think right. that the government is already clamping down on that anyways. So how do right. we how do we approach that? Yeah. Well, so it, it's kind of interesting because going back to what you were referring to, Shamal, with Jesus before Pilate, I think it was John chapter 19. And there was a recognition. Like, remember he said uh, with the coin, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So he's acknowledging the legitimacy of those human powers and and so we still honor the gift tax to whom tax. So Romans 13, 
so I want to get to this and answer your question, because he's saying everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established and so on. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And then further on in that passage, he says that the, the governing authorities is that he is God's servant, the authority to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. And then he says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, to submit to them, not only because of punishment, but also because of conscience. So you, you submit to the governing authorities, the secular authorities, the ungodly authorities, not just because you're afraid of being punished, but because of your conscience towards God, because God put them in place. And then he says, that's why you pay taxes. Ah, interesting. Give everyone what you own, tax to whom tax, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about the same thing. Slaves to your masters, even to those who are unreasonable and harsh, still submit to them. If you suffer for doing good, great. But if you suffer because you're stupid and foolish, shame on you. And so... What's interesting about this is the pastor in Edmonton, who I, th I think he's still in jail. I, I got mixed feelings about this because uh, there's a lot of Christians and pastors out there who are saying, you know, that, you know, we need to pray for him and do something about this because, the God, you know, this is wrong. Because, I mean, it's just like the, the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime kind of a thing. It's just like way too far. But apparently he's refusing to say, well, he's saying, if you release me, I'm going to go right back to doing what I was doing. And we're going to have unrestricted worship services and all that. So they're saying, well, we don't want you to do that. So they're keeping him there. So personally, you know, I have concerns that the government is overreaching there. But I think what's happening is the when the apostles in Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5 Acts 3 to 5, disobey the Sanhedrin when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You're filling Jerusalem with this man's name. They were told, they said, you decide whether it's, you know, whether we should obey God or you. But as for us, we must obey God. And we can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. There was a direct violation of the gospel right there where they were, they were, because they were commanded, go and preach. And, 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 you know, proclaim this message and spread it in all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And so they had a prior, a higher authority than the Sanhedrin uh, and that they were being obedient to. But that was an exception to Romans 13. To me, now what's happening is the exception is becoming the rule. The, right now, we, we said the rule is we stand opposed to the government that's telling us that we need to restrict our meetings and that we need to restrict the numbers and we need to wear masks and we need to sanitize and all that kind of stuff. And we're saying we're being picked on here. We're being singled out. And I think what's happened is I think I'm afraid that we've gone too far um, the other way now where we've, we've, we've actually, and I know John MacArthur in the United States and California, he reopened his big church. Right. And he's very well aware of Romans 13. I mean, he's, he's, a real student of the Bible, but my, my, I think he's dying on the wrong hill, but, and they're saying, you know, we have a right to gather. God's commanded us to gather. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Romans or Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. 
don't forsake the assembly, but there's many ways we can assemble. We're assembling right now on Zoom. To me, I feel like they've limited what church is. Um, so I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned that it's a poor testimony to people in the community. Um, I'm not sure I'm right, but I think there's a better way for us to do this. You know, and I feel like uh, Andy Stanley's church in the U.S., you know, when John MacArthur opened last summer, Andy Stanley, really big church, uh, said, we're going to wait till the new year, 2021. Who's right? But my feeling is, um, I feel like maybe we've lost our way a little bit where we're saying we want to obey God, not man, to the point where I don't know if that's really what it's about is obeying God. I wonder if it's more about I have a right. <laughs> yeah, and, and and what you what you said there about like does it affect the effectiveness of the church? I think that that's an important point that I feel like it gets lost in this conversation because, you know, like like you said, we are commanded to to make disciples. We are commanded to to gather. We are commanded. You know, is this hindering it? Right, and, and if it is, then yeah, like I I think there is a case to be made that you know, we should not follow this because it's, it's hindering our ability to be, be Christians. Um, but maybe that just begs a bigger question. Like, is it, is it actually hindering it? Um, or is there a way to do it, to do church? Uh, yes, we are called to gather. Yes, we're called to make disciples, but there's no, there's no indication as to like what methodology, specific methodology to be used. Exactly. Right. Like, like Jesus and, you know, God doesn't talk about like, well, you need to be sitting in a room physically with someone else uh, or you need to be all gathered in, in a large building shoulder to shoulder uh yeah. doing certain activities you know that there's there's no prescription as to necessarily what that looks like yeah. so i think that that's another piece that we need to be keeping in mind like there are the sort of the larger commandments but there's like particularly in our day and age with all with all the technology and creativity and access that we have uh and living in a society that is largely still very functional uh like we have so many different means at our, at our disposal like we can conduct discipleship activities and, and church services in ways that still love our neighbor and protect them. That doesn't necessarily have to conform to certain, you know, methods like meeting in necessarily in, in like right. physical, in physical person. And we can still gather just in smaller units. I look at the church in communist China. Uh, I think it was under Mao Zedong, right? And they, they had to go underground. So they found a different way. Like, as you said, Shamal, they, they didn't, gather in the state church and in, in the big building perhaps but they they thrived and i thought well where's our imagination you know exactly and i mean even some of the like what you you know the example that you that you talked about you know peter and, and john and some of the multiple times when they were brought before the sanhedrin well, a couple of times anyway before the sanhedrin and they were commanded to stop preaching in, G in this name particularly yes. Uh, and, and a couple pieces that we really need to tease out there is first of all, like that was like the specific instant there was like they were not in the middle of like a, a deadly plague that right. everybody was carrying and it was like a spreadable disease. It was more like ideological disease that were trying right. to clamp exactly. down on these guys, right? <laughs> they were saying, like, we, what you guys are doing here is like you're threatening, A, you're threatening our power and you're threatening our pragmatic compromises that we've made with, to maintain the peace with, with, with Caesar's empire right here. And so you're messing with not just our power, but like you're particularly me potentially messing with this like arrangement that we've sort of worked out with with the, with the Roman Empire as well uh, by proclaiming that not Caesar is not king anymore, but like Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord and and king. And secondly, it's this idea as well of of I think post enlightenment we have in, in the West uh, 
and increasingly globally as well. Like we, we've separated all these different spheres of life, right? Like we have the religious sphere, we have the political sphere, we have the social sphere, we have all these different areas that we've sort of split things up into. Uh, and that's why we have like this, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has like religious rights kind of laid out, uh, the sort of religious freedoms laid out under it. But there's almost this idea of like, well, separation of religion from other facets of life. And there's like religious, you know, right to worship, but that's separate from like these other things. And I mean, the exact wording as well talks about uh, that, you know, the rights and freedoms of the child are actually not absolute. They can be limited to protect other rights or important national values, uh, implying that there are like national values and rights that are somehow separate from religious rights and freedoms right. and so on, right? right. Whereas, you know, in, in Jesus's time and like in all the, in sort of certainly the Jewish society back, you know, and, you know, just back in the day in general, that, that radical separation wasn't really there, right? And in Jewish society, the temple was really like the center of everything. It was center yeah. of, like, of like politics, commerce, um, right. Right. you know, religion and everything was kind of tied up together. Right. So it's, it's, I think that context needs to be taken into account as well when we're extending stuff from there to where we are today with sort of these radical separations that we put up yeah. uh, and, and, and understand that, well, you know, as, as, as true Christ followers, um, sure, we, we sort of have to sort of, engage with the attention of like, well, the state defines what certain religious rights and freedoms are. Like, this is what religion is and this is what not religion is. But as, as followers of Christ, like, like being a Christian is, 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 is all encompassing. It, it is a life. It is not like a religious thing that we put and do on the side. And so it, it needs to be, as, as people who are being formed into Christ's image, like it is all encompassing. It's everything we do is sort of filled up with, with, with Jesus and, and, and right. his life and, and that sort of thing. Right. And so, uh, so we, we, we need to sort of understand as well that what, we, what we're trying to do in living out a life as disciples is, is still radically different than what sort of the, the larger societal uh, yes. distillation of, of, of living life as, as a citizens is. So how do we go about living in that tension of uh, living radically different, but still respecting the authorities and the government? Recently, I've been sort of drawn to some of the examples of some of those folks in uh, so the old testament times who who sort of navigated the tension in really interesting ways like like daniel for daniel, example I think yeah, of daniel yeah, and i think of yeah. someone like even nehemiah right yeah. like they, they they rose to positions of of of, of like great pro prominence in in pagan empires right i mean daniel straddled two empires the, the babylonians and the persians yeah. and, and nehemiah was in the persian empire the cupbearer to the king which is also like a position of, of pretty major yeah. prominence and like he had the right ear of of the persian king right and so they sort of had this sense of like well we we, we are we are fully sort of living in this empire that is not it was meant like it's not israel the way it was meant to be but we are still working for the betterment of the empire as well, well and, and, and jeremiah we, jeremiah says pray for the peace of the city of, of you know, he actually said that pray for the peace yeah. of babylon babylon yeah and I mean, and, and these and these guys are working actively for the betterment of of the empires that they're, you know, serving under. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain lines that they draw. I was like, well, we need to sort of look at those, you know, like like the the, the line in the sand for Daniel was praying to God, versus praying to the, the image of the king, uh, which all the, goes all the way back to the primary commandment: love your love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Yes. And so he was he was really like that was sort of his his line in the sand, and then everything else sort of. He kind of navigated it. It seems like he navigated it. And uh, well, Nehemiah, we probably see some similar things. But I feel like those are like interesting examples that we need to look at around like how they lived in, but were not of, but in ways that still, you know, were not openly flaunting 
yeah. laws and regulations. And maybe it's not that much different. I mean, there's some people that might say we're living in Babylon now. I mean, we're yep. living yep. secular and a pluralistic. Mm-hmm. And it, but can I just read you this? Because, Shamal, um, you were talking about Daniel and Nehemiah and all that, where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. This is what he says to the Thessalonians. Lead it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I wonder if that's been forgotten. Are we are we even trying to win the respect of outsiders? Do we care about, like, and, and again, there's another place too, where he says, pray for the governors and kings. But the idea is that when you pray for them, you bring peace and it's better for you. Because when we pray for the governors and kings and we pray for the city and the province and the country that we're in, and it prospers, we prosper along with it. But so we're not supposed to be the rebels. Like, I don't think Paul, Peter and John in Acts were trying to be the rebels. They were they weren't like these nonconformist rebels who are like, you know, we're going to stand against the Sanhedrin and we're going to stand against Rome and we're going to create trouble. They're never, they never had the intent of creating trouble. They were accused of it. They're preaching, you know, Jesus was accused of it. You're, they're trying to set up another kingdom, like you said, Shamal, but we're not supposed to be troublemakers. We're not. We're supposed to be peacemakers. I mean, I, I would I would push back on it, like you said, like Jesus. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of a tricky one because I don't think everybody respected Jesus and he did cause trouble. Right. So, so how is that, how is that different than what you're saying? <laughs> That's a good one. So with Jesus, so he overturned the tables, right. Uh, in the marketplace. And then he also, Matthew 23, the woes, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. You know, he says, you take a, a convert to make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You know, he says some pretty insulting things, right. Mm-hmm. I, I think his intent was not to be a rebel as much as his intent was to do justice and righteousness. Our objective is to seek justice for people um, and to do the, and we'll suffer for it. We're willing to be crucified for it. We're willing to die for it, but we're not willing to kill for it. And that to me is the distinction. Like I don't think the objective is to be an ignorant rebel, like in your face, you know, obnoxious that's not what we're about because i mean and and the thing is like at that time those people existed those movements existed the in your face rebels were the zealots they existed they were yeah and then there was also the the group of people who completely withdrew from society the essenes right so these groups were already there and i mean and you look at the, the makeup of the disciples as well, right? Like, I mean, this was like, I mean, not just a ragtag bunch of guys, but there were people who came from like very different ideologies as well. Like you had the tax collector and then you had Simon the Zealot yep. uh, who, who believed, who was part of a group that believed that violent overthrow of the Roman Empire needed to be, was, was part of God's call. Simon the Zealot would have been there on January 6th when they went to the Congress. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, and so <laughs> yeah, the, the insurrectionist, yeah. <laughs> Blowing the shofar. Anyway, but but like you, you know, you you had those groups already there. And 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 those like those movements have not changed in many ways. The essence of those movements have have sort of you, you still see you still see those today. Wow. You still see, you still see the separatists, 
you still Absolutely. see zealots and they use different language maybe but that that still is there and and jesus and his disciples were like they were they they were not any of those things mm-hmm. um there were maybe moments where we might interpret as being like well you know he was he was being rebellious but again i think it's important to sort of drill down a little bit and look at some of the context there because like i mean jesus harshest words consistently were to the religious to the jewish leaders mm-hmm. uh i mean he didn't he didn't like most of his harsh rhetoric was not directed necessarily directly towards uh the roman empire actually i mean there was a lot of indirect uh, commentary on 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 pagan empires and things but a lot of his what he had to say was directly directed towards the jewish leaders of the religious people uh, with the within judaism and then when you look at even moments like the like he's overturning uh tables in in the temple like he wasn't i think it's it's important to like sort of uh, like read all the gospels because i mean like in 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 luke i think seen like sort of a direct movement like he comes into Jerusalem and then he goes straight to the temple and just like does all this stuff but if you read mark which many authorities would consider to be like an earlier uh yeah. Yeah. telling he actually comes into Jerusalem first and then he he goes to the temple then he goes back and he spends the night with his disciples doing stuff and then he comes back the next morning and then he does the whole temple sort of overturning tables thing and so there's like mm-hmm. a deliberate almost like premeditated thing going on here and if you look at Jesus sort of general what he does all the way through like he's not just teaching things so people can learn didactically but like everything he does is calculated to make a point so and so everything he was doing was very intentional so this was not like a like a sort of i don't know my sense is that he was not just like a angry uh, or i'm just like losing my calm and just getting ticked off and doing this thing like it was very there was a there was a purpose to all of this yeah uh, and and that there's a commentary and like you know things that were going on that we might not necessarily fully be able to grasp by sort of surface reading like we need to sort of dig down a little bit deeper and look at like well you know like jewish society and like what are some of the other themes and like the position of temple and like what is like what was jesus saying about the temple in general uh, what was his commentary on the temple and its place uh because you know he goes on to say you know destroy this temple well, you know. and they thought he was making a like a political statement or something they thought he was going to have an uprising and destroy the temple he's talking about yeah, his body right yeah, yeah exactly and, and so all of those things need to be taken into account so i mean uh, yeah there were moments when it looked like jesus was was uh pushing the boundaries on on authority and and you know uh, being rebellious but you sort of need to i think understand the context of that rebellion that it wasn't necessarily sometimes a commentary on political maybe sort of direct sort of empire authority but might have been sort of directly kind of commenting on the religious authorities and like the yes. jewish people and what they were doing i was going to say again i don't think like you know when you meet somebody who's just like a contrarian or like they're just always non-conforming they're just like it's like they're really insecure and they just want to they, you know if you say black they're going to say white and that's really dysfunctional and so jesus wasn't that he wasn't like i don't think his point in my view his point wasn't to raise a rebellion or to to cause trouble but he knew he might have to cause trouble to bring righteousness and justice and holiness and to do the father's will that that causing a disturbance became one of the mechanisms but it wasn't the objective yeah like what i'm hearing from from you guys you can say Jesus caused disruption like i don't think there's there's any you know arguing that 
Um, but what you kind of point, put it on was the, the reason for that, like he caused disruption for justice, right? Not as opposed to personal gain. Right. Or personal, right. right. So it's a, it's a, and it's a collective thing too, like a, a collective justice. Right. Correct. Broken systems. And so, so he was justified in, in doing that. Exactly. That's a good point you just made that I think we need to talk more about later. Uh, that when you said collective justice, because I think that's another sort of important filter that we often have trouble with understanding this, that there wasn't this radical disconnect between individualism and collectivism in, in, in sort of the society that Jesus was, was acting in and doing things in at that time. Like, I mean, again, this is a post-enlightenment thing, right? Like where in, like, and it's a very Western post-enlightenment thing where we've, uh, you know, Descartes, whole, whole idea of cogito ergo sum, like I think, therefore I am, and this like radical disconnect between mind and body and individual and society and so yeah. on that we see everywhere, and that did not exist in Jesus' time, and so that like that is not like a, a lens that we should necessarily be reading through. Like we need to take that into account as well. So when we're talking about you know justice and freedom and all these things that you know have Christian roots in their sort of legal definitions now in in the West, but sort of. In, in sort of the scriptural basis that they sort of stretch back to, they were very much in, in sort of this joint space that was a, a combination of, of individual and, and society and this understanding that the two are not necessarily radically disconnected and that one defines the other and so on. Um, you know, uh, there's this interesting quote that I'm gonna close with and then stop talking that I read in, you know, Viktor Frankl, who's a, a survivor of um, a concentration camp survivor who went on to be a famous uh, psychotherapist and, and, and wrote a bunch of books around that. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about, you know, in, in the US, we really prize freedom. We even have like freedom and liberty. Like we have a statue that um, embodies, like we have the Statue of Liberty on one, on one, one coast. But in order to have a functioning human society, uh, he was like, we need to have another, uh, we, we should be putting a statue on the other coast that's a statue of responsibility as well, because we cannot have true freedom in human society without responsibility to each mm. other. Uh, and, and because we've radically disconnected these things, wow. we see sort of the breakdown of society, freedom from responsibility. And I think, uh, you know, that sort of, I draw the line to a book I read recently, which was written by a Catholic, a political scientist at Notre Dame University, his name is Patrick Deneen, and the book is called the Why Liberalism Failed. Um, okay. And he talks about like one of the core problems with sort of our Western approach to democracy and why we're in such the mess that we are right now is that we don't take virtue seriously that that in order for like a democratic society to function you need to have virtuous citizens um and i mean and he's like you know personally i i think like the best definition of virtue is within the christian formation of of virtue um but i think those think those things are all connected like you know virtue and 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 responsibility uh are sort of you know part and parcel of each other. Like we cannot have a functioning society that is truly, that can be truly free unless we also are like deeply formed uh, into, into sort of those virtues, which are, you know, the Christian virtues. And that's where, again, I think, like you said, the two statues, because if we just sort of, we embrace liberty, freedom, my rights and freedoms, but I have no sense of responsibility. If I'm not a virtuous person who believes I'm responsible, not only for myself, but for others around me, and I'm responsible for the larger society, and I got to give back. It, but if it's just about my freedoms and my point of view and nothing else matters, then it all falls apart, right? I, I love your idea of virtuous citizen. I, I, I that's really interesting because in, in that case, 
through that lens, like Christianity actually has a lot to offer, right? And and you could say that the demise, like the rise of atheism and, and the demise of Christianity, plays a big part into why we, mm. our freedoms are are declining, right? Using that model, so yeah. like we could actually promote a more free society if we promote, you know, Christian virtues or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, and I, I know you've heard this phrase frequently, Ryan, because we listen to some of the same podcasts, but you know, this idea of like people aren't in, in, in North America, like people aren't rejecting the church because we are being too religious or because we are being too much like Jesus, but we're, we're not being enough. We're not like, we're not embodying Jesus enough, which is why I agree. Leaving. And if you, if you dig beneath some of the surface and the, and the, and the questions and rhetoric, like you see a lot of what people are just aching for um, is the kind of, I don't know, like the, the kind of kingdom society that Jesus lived out and inaugurated, really, right? So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's a failure of the church in many ways. I I, I long for it, we, and I think we need to long for that. And and I again, I come back to love. I mean, Jesus, you know, love one another. In First John, love one another. In, you know, Paul, you know it's the greatest command right and and i feel that we have to talk about what does that look like because that to me that's what brings the kingdom shamal i don't know if you know because you're probably more of a historian than i am but the, the martin luther quote during the plague the was the bubonic plague and he talked about you know doing all the the things that we do like wearing something over your face and you know sanitizing there's a there's a famous quote um and so there was martin luther the great martin luther who said, you know, let's do it. Let's do these things to protect ourselves and others. Okay, because that's what love does. First Corinthians eight, uh, verse two, I think, you know, where he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, edifies. For the sake, I may think I know something, but what I know, that's just arrogance. Love says, I want to protect. Okay, first Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love always trusts always hopes, always protects, always perseveres. Love protects. And when we can, we think we can just go and flout convention and put people at risk. What if we're wrong? No, absolutely. And I think Jesus clearly said when he was asked, you know, like, what, like you know, what are, what are the most important commandments? Uh, and he sort of distilled, distilled the law and the prophets down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so I think that's that's an important, like that's such a key piece to be asking, right? Like, what is it? What does neighbor love look like in action right now? Thanks for listening. I hope you had a good time and maybe even learned or were challenged by something. We know there's so much more to cover and acknowledge there are many other great perspectives and questions out there and want to hear from you. Go to firstnaz.ca slash podcast, click on the episode and scroll down to the bottom. You can leave a comment or question there or send us an email at mindthegap at firstnaz.ca. We will compile your questions and comments and go through them in a future episode. Now, let's go make Christ-like disciples with a heart for God and passion for people.